As much as I love to hear myself talk, there are some people I would love for you to meet. And every so often, I will bring on a guest to share insights and ideas that I think will help you shine. My first ever guest on 20 Minutes with Bronwyn is Dr. Adam Dorsey. Dr. Dorsey is a licensed psychologist working in private practice in San Jose, California. And he specializes in working with highly successful people in Silicon Valley and helps them with relationship issues, stress reduction, anxiety, and attaining more happiness in their lives. In addition to his private practice, Adam is the co-creator of Project Reciprocity, a highly successful international resiliency program based out of Facebook's headquarters in Menlo Park, California, where he served employees in the online safety department at Facebook for four years. He also serves as a resiliency consultant to DigitalOcean, a cloud company in Manhattan. And Adam is also happily married with two young boys and an awesome dog named Rafi, who lives at his home and works at his office. At some point, I will be bringing Adam back to talk about his resiliency consulting. But today, today I want to focus on a TEDx Santa Clara talk Adam gave a few years ago. Let's dive in. Okay, friends, I am so excited to bring you the most fabulous guest I could have possibly considered for my first guest on 20 Minutes with Bronwyn. You're about to hear from Dr. Adam Dorsey. And the reason, Adam, I have you here now in this conversation is because of a TED Talk you gave. What was the name of your TED Talk? It was titled, Emotions, the Data Men Miss. Such a good title. And what was the problem? In fact, I've sent this talk to everybody I know, so I know the problem. I know the talk like the back of my hand, but for those who haven't seen it, what is the problem you're describing in this TED Talk? I'm describing a problem that is of epidemic proportions. Smart men have gone through life making really good choices for their careers, and I say good with quotes around the word good because <laughs> at the end they're finding that their choices have been somewhat empty because they've been informed only by what they should do, what society tells them they should do, what their parents tell them they should do, what well-intentioned people who are geared towards success tell them they should do. They hadn't taken their emotions into account. I work with really, really smart clients who I just generally call people. I don't use patients or clients. I just call them the people I see. And these people come in and they are really, really smart, fantastic people who don't even know what they want when I ask them, what would a successful therapy relationship look like? What would you get? And they often say, I don't even know. So one of the things that we do know about the way our brains are set up is without factoring in emotional data, we can't make decisions. And that's why I love the way you framed the subject is I think men have a hard time talking about emotions and the way you frame it as data makes it more palatable. Yeah. Was that intentional? Highly so. We are in a data-driven society and one of the data sources we don't take into consideration really are our emotions. 
In fact, I, as part of my process of helping people plan talks, is we go through plotting a narrative arc. And I plot, I make the plot points based on emotional states. So do we surprise the audience in the beginning and, you know, shock them? And then in the middle, we play with the emotion of curiosity or like intrigue. And at the end, we mess with emotions like inspiration, things like that. And certain clients of mine, men and women are like, oh yeah, I got it. No problem. And other clients, not necessarily men, they just may be more identified with the masculine vibe. They have a really hard time articulating different emotional states. What are the like societally <laughs> acceptable emotions that men are allowed to have access to? Great question. They generally experience what I call the superficial emotional states, which include frustration. That's totally okay. I'm frustrated. When they're really feeling angry, perhaps even brokenhearted, they will code it with frustration. Mm-hmm. They will go with, I feel like, which is actually a thought about a feeling. So it's abstracted from the feeling itself. So when we either coat the emotion with a superficial emotion, or we go into thought, it's a defense against feeling more deeply and really knowing what that emotion is. It's tantamount to not knowing ourselves. So let's just say, though, for if you're playing devil's advocate, let's say there's somebody who's listening who's like, you know, why why should I feel brokenhearted? Why should I feel grief? Why should I feel vulnerable? And why should I freaking talk about it? It's embarrassing and it's unpleasant. And I've gotten along just fine staying at the I'm frustrated level instead of delving more deeply into my emotions. So it's compartmentalization. I'm just fine. It's kind of like having to go pee for a really long time. I can get through things. I can get through an hour. Sometimes people can go like camels, but it's not a very nice ride. And these things need to actually inform us. They're meant to be illustrative about our lives. Like, how did I respond to heartache? How can I know myself better from this heartache? And how can it inform a better choice next time? Or what do I need to look for? They're missing out on a lot of information. And so what do you do? Like, let's say somebody walks into your office and he sits down and he says, I've got a Ferrari. No, sorry, that's so dated. I'm sorry, I've got a Tesla. You got it. And I live in a high-rise apartment and I make well into seven figures. I've done everything right. And yet I come home at night and I feel, I don't know what I feel, but it isn't good. Right. What do you do? So what you're describing and the fancy term for it is alexithymia, which literally means the inability to articulate our feeling states. When we are alexithymic, we don't know how we feel and we end up with these kind of hollow lives, even though we've got the seven figures, even though we've got the Tesla, that Tesla becomes old. One of the things I actually ask people to do when they have a Tesla is remember back when you were in college, what you were driving, remember what you longed for. And after the first week of driving the Tesla, usually by around day eight, that new car smell is gone. They don't feel the gratitude. Oh my God, I'm driving a freaking Tesla. This is like an X-Wing fighter. <laughs> I mean, it's the greatest, greatest car ever. And around day eight, it's just, I'm just driving to work. It's, I've forgotten that this is amazing. And one of the things I actually do is I say, drive it as if you're driving it the first time. So in your practice, Adam, you're not trying to devalue the fact that there's seven figures being earned, no. that there's a high riser, that there's a Tesla being driven. Instead, what you're pointing to is what? Instead, I'm saying leverage that. I am in deep appreciation of the fact that they've been able to ascend to the levels they have. At this point, they have more than enough 
resources to begin to feel. They are not going to end out on the <laughs> streets if they start. They can afford to feel. They can afford to feel, and they could have afforded a lot longer before if they'd allowed themselves to feel. They worry that if they feel something, they'll never not feel something. Feelings change. Feelings don't stay forever. King Solomon had a ring that said, this too shall pass. It's in the Bible, and it has been a long-held truth for the human condition. So why do you think then, why do you think men are, I mean, there's obviously like the cultural aspect, like men maybe traditionally aren't quote unquote supposed to feel the range of emotion, but why, if you're a man who's conscious enough to know, I have the Tesla, I have the money, I have the house, I have the wife, I have the kids, and I still feel like shit every day. Mm -hmm. Why do, why does a guy like that continue to avoid feeling? Sure, they're scary. It's almost like Voldemort in the first Harry <laughs> Potter film. It's like, he who shall not be named. And Harry says, I'm naming him. He's Voldemort. And once something is named, it ceases to have as much control over you. But they're terrifying. He's been conditioned over time to be frightened of the unknown, the unspeakable. And once it's spoken, it's really the cliched making a mountain out of a molehill, he realizes, oh my gosh, I can totally do this. This is not that scary. How does how does that affect the way a human being, like when I think about the arc of my life, like I am very much a feminine, I'm a woman. I also identify as a woman. I also feel a lot of feminine qualities. And so I've allowed my feeling states to dictate a lot of the choices I've made in my life. In fact, if I look back and think about how different my life would have been if I had used only logic, it would be a completely different life. So when you talk to men and say, hey, feel your feelings because you're going to live a richer life, is it also because they're going to make a different set of choices about their lives? And if so, how? So the marriage piece, biggest decision ever. The quality of your life rises or falls based on that one decision. And oftentimes emotional factors were not really taken into account enough. I knew I shouldn't have married her, they'll say. I felt it deep down and yet I overrode those feelings. I felt as though I should. And the should state is not good enough. Well, what if you didn't? What feelings would you have to tolerate to say, no, what short-term bad feelings would you tolerate rather than 20 years of ambivalence? And to me, as a communication coach, because I'm, I'm so fascinated with why we communicate the way we do and how we might communicate better, I find that people who struggle with, so I get brought in, you know, to coach somebody who's like, oh God, they've got this huge passive aggressive communication style. They're really bombastic or caustic or whatever, and you need to fix them. And usually somewhere underlying that is someone who doesn't feel like he or she is able to say, this doesn't work for me. I don't like this, or this doesn't feel right. And so they go along with it. The snowball rolls down the hill and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then when they finally are in the situation, they're miserable to work with because they're pissed off, passive aggressive, withholding, I'm taking my toys and I'm going home. That's why I think psychology is so fascinating is to me, we communicate the way our psychology is made up. You know, if you're if you're entangles emotionally, your communication is entangles. Right. Right. So what do you see like from a communication style when you look at men and women Absolutely who both. don't feel their feels? Mm -hmm. How do they what does that communication start to look they like? They want to be nice in the moment and they say yes. They acquiesce to just that impulse to be kind. 
And then they end up resenting. I call it the consent and resent cycle. And it thankfully rhymes, which makes it easy. And you can ask yourself, will saying no mean tolerating one minute of pain, a day of pain, versus perhaps a week, a year of feeling angry that you'd even signed up. And it's interesting. It To me, it seems like, and this is not just men, this is all of us, we seem more able to tolerate feeling resentful and angry and then rehashing the situation with people after the fact. We feel more comfortable with all that toxicity totally. than we do with engaging in conflict in the moment, engaging in saying no in the moment. Why is that? You're being intimate with yourself and the other in that moment. You're actually saying, I know who I am. And you're saying, I'm going to show you who I am to the other person. And that is potentially terrifying. Terrifying, yeah. Especially when there's some shoulds attached to it, right? Shoulds, a wonderful cognitive distortion. (laughs) Tell us about cognitive distortions. For those those of you listening that don't know what a cognitive distortion is, what's that? It's when your thinking is somehow distorted by a should or something that is not reality. One of my favorite ones is catastrophizing. It's when you see something go on, you see a certain trend and you immediately jump to, and that's going to kill me. And it's not going to. And this is something we receive from our ancestors. Our ancestors really had life and death situations every day handed to them. And they had reason to catastrophize. If there was famine, if there was a warring tribe nearby, if there was a lion that was coming nearby, they could die. And those who did not really heed those warnings, their bloodlines died off. So we can thank our ancestors for causing us a lot of, keeping us safe and keeping us alive and keeping our DNA intact. And yet we need to override these cognitive distortions. It's akin to a control alt delete. It's kind of overriding our systems and saying, wait, hold on a second. This is actually not going to kill me. This is not worthy of catastrophizing. That's right. And examining the data. I love whenever I'm catastrophizing, I always like to say Bronwyn, examine the evidence Is there really evidence to suggest this is going to kill you? No. Totally. And then saying no feels in that moment like it's going to kill you. That's right. And it's almost like I really wish some natural disaster would occur so we could get out of this conversation rather than just looking at the person saying, you know what, I've gotten in touch. And the answer is no. There's this amazing book called, I think it's called Radical Self-Care. And I read it several years ago. And one of the chapters is called Let Me Disappoint You. Mm. And that chapter was so so good. I feel like the whole book could have been that chapter, but that chapter was so challenging for me because my guts turned to liquid when I feel like I've disappointed somebody or let them down. I know my husband's wired the same way. Sal hates letting people down, hates disappointing people. And I will put myself at psychological risk and not so much physical risk, but emotional risk to avoid the feeling of having disappointed someone with my no. It's, and I'm getting better at it every every year I get older. I'm better. I'm so much better than I used to be. But that is a real thing for a lot of people. This is real life yoga. You are <laughs> learning how to, to just stretch and tolerate. Tolerate the pretzel bends. Tolerate the pretzel bend. Yeah. Like my dad recently passed away and I watched some of the worst decisions he made in his life that led to catastrophic consequences were because he couldn't say no because... He was afraid of disappointing somebody. Catastrophic consequences. And I wonder if we were to look at his life in a pie chart, how much of his life was consumed by that? So much. So much. God, the percentage of time and thinking and resources and money 
untangling that shit is, yeah. And I, I don't mean to drag him through the mud. I think he's a proxy for all of us. He's Absolutely. representative of the whole. It's our one non-renewable resource. We can lose our health. We can get it back. We can lose our money, get it back. When your time is gone, our time is gone. And your father, I'm sure, was a great guy in many ways. And I think he does serve as a very important example for how we can live our life and really claim it and own it. I think that's right. And I think something sometimes I'll give clients homework assignments, especially around this, because having a strong, high-quality no and the courage to establish a no makes you a much better communicator because you have boundaries and you're able to uphold those boundaries and you're able to communicate with integrity because you have boundaries, right? And so I'll give people homework assignments to practice being okay with disappointing people in small ways, right? In enduring it so that when the big things come, they can handle it. Do you give your clients assignments like that? When it sure. Comes to this? What, what assignments do you give your clients around this? The first thing is just noticing the feelings and naming them. Because if they're not named, they become like Freddy Krueger. They're terrifying. Uh, they are walking <laughs> All around. All these 80s references are just so good. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. I was, th- I, was, I was actually thinking about Jason or Freddy. Something behind a mask, something dark and terrifying that's unknown. And if you know the feeling, it's like, okay, guess what? You, just, I, you don't have to say it out loud. I am noticing that I'm really, really feeling anxious about saying no. This is scary. And I also know that Tomorrow me is going to be super stoked that I said no today because tomorrow me is going to say, dude, you had my back rather than tomorrow me saying, dude, really, you're going to leave me with this flying, you know, I call it a uh, <laughs> flaming bag of shit to deal with the next day. <laughs> you, we, we can the send old flaming bag of shit. The old flaming bag of shit thing. We can either leave our future selves a love note saying, hey, I love you so much that I'm going to say no today. So that tomorrow when you open this love note, you'll say, I'm so glad I said no. Also, and I, I, this is all part of this, the conversation about emotions as data. But one of the things recently, I had this instinct, and I'm very into listening to my instincts. It's like a huge part of my life. But this, it, this voice inside of me, Adam, was saying, your kids have YouTube on their devices. This is not a good thing. And they're too little. All they do is look at their own stuff, right? But I was like, I've got to get kids tube or whatever the hell it's called on their machines. So I ripped off YouTube off of everybody's device, except for Stella because she's almost a teenager. But I ripped off YouTube. I put in the kids tube. And my seven-year-old son flipped out and literally cried himself to sleep. He was heartbroken because he was convinced that his Plants vs. Zombies, you know, fan videos wouldn't be available anymore. And he literally cried himself to sleep and it tore totally. me up. Yep. And I remember sitting there being like, this is a really good low risk opportunity for me to f- practice being in full contact with someone else's reaction to my no. Yes. And it was fucking awful. <laughs> it was like, he was falling apart. He literally, his pillow was wet. My heart was shattered. But I was like, you, you, this is the right thing. Feel the feels. And all the feelings I had were, is it really that important? He, I'm supposed to protect him from pain. I'm causing him pain. And then the next morning he woke up and he said, oh, mom, it's fine. I was just tired. And, what, and, right. and all of his videos were available, it turns out. But what advice do you have for, like, it's one thing to name the feeling and say, okay, I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling upset. It's another thing to actually 
feel it. Right. It was like blossoming in my chest like a demogorgon, if anybody's watched Stranger Things. <laughs> yes. Have you watched Stranger Things? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It was like a flowering demogorgon face in my chest is how it felt. So there are many ways of dealing with this. You know you're doing the right thing. The right thing is a hard thing to do, and it's excruciating. Could you talk to Sal? I'm sure you could. Say, Sal, holy crap, this is so freaking hard yeah. for me to do this. I know that Luca is going to just, he needs this, and yet I'm struggling madly and badly. And he just holds you as you tolerate those feelings, knowing you're doing the right thing. It helps to have somebody who gets you. You, If you don't have anybody at hand, write it down. Just write about the feelings. They need to be discharged. I love that. Okay, so really quick. Discharging of emotions. Yes. Huge on this. Yes. Huge fan of discharging Ditto. emotions. I will go on a, sw- I will swim. I will do an angry swim. Awesome. I'll do angry dancing. Beautiful. Or I will do, when I was grieving the loss of my friend Kevin who died and my dad who died this year, I would do grief workouts yep. where I would put streaming Tracy Anderson videos and light candles and ball as I was getting my endorphins going. What do you, how do you help people? So that coping strategy is so great. So much of that emotional stuff resides in our body and we need to discharge it physically. You've seen animals even do this. They shake it off. I'm telling you, Taylor Swift had it right when she talked about shaking it off. She's a bodhisattva. She's a, she's a bodhisattva, totally. She, I mean, she's like, you know what? They're going to hate, but I'm going to shake it off. And that's what we need to do physically. We go for a run. We do some push-ups. I've got push-up bars in every room in my house. Do so that you if I, really? if, if, Yeah, and I love it. Just if, if, if I'm feeling... When Ariane comes in, she's like, oh, shit, oh, he's on oh. the push <laughs> <laughs> He's not even getting the body he wants, but still, <laughs> I love him anyway. I've got, I've got push-up bars right there on my desk. I don't see him. So push-ups are a good way of, of discharging. Sometimes it takes just five seconds. We can change our behaviors, our thoughts, or our feelings. And I put them in that order because it's easier to change the behavior than it is our thoughts or our feelings. So if you go out for that run, if you just watch that video that always makes you laugh and puts you into a state of levity from the state of gravity that you're in, if you can do anything to discharge those feelings, you could even ask yourself, you know, why am I doing this? What is my North Star here with Luca? Mm -hmm. And my North Star is I'm trying to create an awesome kid. And I know just like Tom Landry, the great coach of the Dallas Cowboys back in the day said, sometimes you got to get somebody to do what they don't want to do to get where they want to go. I love that. Okay. So I have questions about giving a TED Talk because I think people, it's a funny thing that the mystery in and the symbol of TED as a thing as giving a TED Talk. It's like mythical. And I think people don't realize what goes into it. So what I want to ask you is, how much practice did it take to get the result you got on your TED Talk? One of the pieces of feedback I got is, before you do your first TED Talk, and perhaps even your second, you will put in at least 100 hours. I thought, BS, I'll have that. I can do that in 50 hours. They were right. It was well over 100 (laughs) hours of practice. I really wanted to be good. I ran it by so many people to get all types of feedback to see how people felt about the sequence and my wording. A whole host of factors that I wanted to make sure were good. And I noticed that every day my thoughts on my own phrasing would change. It was a fluid, dynamic folder in my computer, and it was changed a gazillion times. And did you have that experience, which I've, I've yet to meet someone that doesn't go through this, where halfway through you're like, what the fuck am I doing? Exactly. <laughs> it's taking way too much time. <laughs> this, is, this is all consuming. And yet I remembered my North Star. I, I really, really wanted to do this. This was 
akin to somebody running a marathon, one of those bucket list items, I knew I had to do this. Well, it had, it's had such an effect on so many people that have watched the video. In fact, I talked to somebody a couple months ago who didn't know you, didn't know that I knew you, and was like, oh my God, have you seen the TED Talk about uh, Man and Emotions? I was like, yes, I have. How did it feel? First of all, did you feel nervous right before you got on stage? And if so, what did you do to discharge the nerves? Hilarious story. A week before, I go into total paralysis. I get on stage for my practice. I can't remember a word of my talk. I'm freaked out and don't know how I'm going to commit this to memory. Later that day, I'm working with a client. I asked her to slow down the cadence of her speech because that behavior would reduce her anxiety. Just slowing down. Just slow down the cadence of your speech. And after I heard it, I thought, Adam, you're trying to deliver this thing really fast. Slow down the cadence of your speech. That night, I do the entire thing from memory. And I did it by listening to my own advice. I slowed down the behavior was slowing down the cadence of my speech. My body responded. My memory allowed itself to unfold. Because, and we, I talk about this constantly, and this will be on this podcast more <laughs> than this time, but once that cascade of physiological reaction happens, once the heart rate goes up, once the fight, flight, or freeze gets triggered, that's when you're Brain gets erased. Right. So by slowing down, I use breath, but slowing down the cadence of delivery achieves the same thing. Absolutely. Fascinating. And did you do any, like, some clients will, like, jump up and down and shake their hands beforehand? Did you have any crazy I did all kinds did? of crazy body stuff. One of the things that you, as my coach, taught me to do was to listen to music beforehand, music that opened me up. And I thought, who is the singer that I need to listen to. And there was no question it was Peter McKenna. I put on his music. Oh God, I don't even know who Peter He's McKenna is. He's awesome. And he often writes lyrics that come from poetry from Rumi and Hafez, these ancient, brilliant thinkers that put your mind in the most open, relaxed, best self place. And it worked. So Bronwyn and Peter. I love that. But also Rumi and Hafez and all those poets, it's a mental state of connection and devotion. It's that sense of we're all in this together. Vibes, totally. Which I, I always tell clients when they give a TED Talk, the worst thing you can do is get on stage and give a TED Talk. Best thing you can do is get on stage and tell the truth of what you know as clearly as you can. Connect and with self and connect with that audience. Yes, which you did like Connect, crazy. connect. What did it feel like when you were finally on stage and it was go time? It's funny. <laughs> it felt amazing, first of all. It was a total rush. And... I wish I had brought a bottle of water on. In spite of the fact that I'd hydrated like a mofo before that thing, <laughs> I somehow got dry mouth halfway through and I thought, oh shit, this is Here how I go. go down. So after all this <laughs> all this practice, I go down as the guy who probably looks like I did bong hits before the thing. And <laughs> all they'll hear is the guy who has dry mouth. Just to be clear, there were no bong hits before the, um, and it was fine. It was fine. Somehow in the audio, it didn't come out too well. People who knew me really well said, oh, it seems that you might have had a bit of dry mouth. But it was not such a big deal. And it was so, it was, it was one of the peak experiences of my life being up there on stage and the afterwards and being greeted by my wife, who was just so, so loving and so proud. It was transcendent. It, was the only, it felt like a transcendent experience. That's amazing. I, and that's, in fact, I just, my next blog post is about this, how I think my cockamamie belief is that we actually come into these skin suits, into these bodies in this point of time to experience our talents. But the rub is that your talents are just on the other side of terror. Absolutely. You said just before, 
everything you want. It's on the other side of here. I love that quote. Well, I can't remember who said it right now. It's so perfect. I've used it a gazillion times in this office. It's so so true. It's 100% true. Listening to those emotions is what you want but don't know you want. It's terrifying, but really, you want it. Because what's on the other side of processing deep grief, deep resentment? What's on the other side of that, Adam? Wisdom, knowing of self, information about who you are, so that you can really more accurately be a PR department unto yourself. (laughs) If you don't know yourself, how can you assert? Assertiveness is so important, and the absence of it leads to depression and a ton of anxiety. Oh, God, I've never heard that before. Depression connected to assertiveness. And emotions, without them, we can't be assertive because we don't actually know what we're asserting. That is really interesting. That is, a, I'm going to need to think about that. Okay, here's what I want to ask you. One of the things I work on with clients a lot is how to manage. So let's say a lot of times I'll work with somebody who comes to me because they're now reporting to someone who's a real aggressive communicator and it turns their insides to liquids. It makes their knees knock, but they have to be able to hang with this super gigantic personality who's fucking terrifying. I got it. Right. So how do you guide people to feel in that moment, if I'm with the alpha gorilla, who's now my boss, how do you coach the beta gorilla to process, look, in this moment, I feel afraid, intimidated. Frankly, my brain is blank because he's so scary and loud and he's yelling at me. How do you help people feel the feels without feeling everything in that moment? Because I can't afford to feel, quote unquote, fear in the face of this giant gorilla. They need to realize it's theater. It's not real. He is playing a part. I'm going to quote the great Taylor Swift once again because the player's going to play and the hater's going to hate. And that boss is going to be that boss. That is the role he's playing or she is playing. It's theater. Just remember it's theater. Breathe. Stand in your strength. Don't cower. Don't take the bait. In fact, one of the greatest things I've learned at Carolyn Mace, who's very new age, you know, spiritual teacher, but I absolutely love her. She talks about the power of seeing your life symbolically. And when the alpha jerk, you know, boss comes in, they're like, don't see it as Steve, see it as the guy that's representing that kind of energy. And how are you going to show up to that kind of energy? I love that idea of seeing it as an archetype. Yes. But I actually use a different coping strategy that I've come up with. I call it cartoonizing. Oh, God. It's almost like imagining it's Monty Burns from (laughs) Simpsons. Imagining it's a cartoon character so that you don't have to take it so seriously. And personally. Or personally. And I'm not talking about degrading the individual across from you. I'm just talking about not taking on the toxic side effects of their style of communication. That's right. That's right. I think that is so good. Another technique, I'm curious to hear what you think about this. As an actual therapist, I only play one on TV. But you're a really good one Um, on TV. God bless you. But one of the things is, you know, when I have a client that's in a room that's a very tense, high conflict, high tension environment, it's imagine a table with eight people around and there's just the air is thick with tension and conflict. I like to do that rope cutting exercise. Like 
I imagine when I have people that are highly sensitive in that environment, that they have a very hard time functioning rationally in tense situations. And I say, you need to cut the cords. Like you're cut, you're you're creating kind of an existential gut level energy connection to people that you're not supposed to be that intimate with, right? Cut the cord. They're allowed to play their role. They're allowed to have whatever emotions they need to have. It doesn't have to impact you viscerally and emotionally. Right. So I, I, you know, you can get dramatic and have a great big red pair of scissors that just snips the connection between you so that you can observe at a safe distance instead of being connected gut to gut with that person. We need to get rid of the hiss, almost the way Dolby gets rid of the hiss on audio files. We need something akin to noise reducing headphones in those moments, like a good pair of Bose headphones so that we don't take on all of the static. Any coping strategy that works is a good one as long as it's not toxic or damaging to your health, mm. mentally or physically. So the cutting the cord, fantastic. Cartoonizing, fantastic. Whatever it takes, a cognitive intervention, remembering that that person does what that person does, try it Is that on. what a cognitive intervention is? A cognitive intervention is a, th a way of thinking differently. It's a thought that I need to actually take on as I'm trying to deal with this thing. Got it. And what works for one might not work for another. So try them on. Consider it a shoe store. Mm -hmm. See, your best friend loves this pair of shoes. You try them on, it doesn't work. Try on the ones until you find the pair that works. But keep trying out new strategies so that you can rock it regardless. And also be, I mean, that's what makes a person battle-tested. That's what makes them, you know, shock-proof. Mm-hmm. God, that's exactly right. In fact, in one of my workshops, I always show this clip from The Matrix when Neo finally figures out that he's the one and he's in the hallway and the bullets are coming and he puts his hand up and he says, no, in that Keanu Reeves <laughs> accent, no. And he stops the bullets. And to me, when you get good at these skills, that's who you become. You become someone who's able to perceive clearly without taking everything so freaking personally all the time. Because there are some people that are real toxic communicators and frankly kind of assholes, but embedded in their nastiness is some pretty important information. Like working for Steve Jobs was really tough because he was mean. Right. But he was also a genius. Right. So you got to have the skills to be able to say, no, I don't have to let these word bullets pierce my exoskeleton. I can just see them for what they are and dig for treasure, right? You got it. So, and it goes back to the emotions and we can either own our emotions or they can own us. We want to get in the driver's seat. And when Keanu did that, even with his Ted voice from Bill and Ted, <laughs> still has it. <laughs> he, he basically made himself bulletproof in that moment saying, you know what? I'm going to see it for what it is. Amen. Here's to being bulletproof. Thank you so, so much, Adam, aka Dr. Dorsey. Bronwyn, it's fantastic to see you. Oh, the best. Thanks, everybody. Shine on, you crazy diamonds. Mm.